0: So take your Bibles, if you haven't yet, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are coming to the home stretch of our summer study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope it's been a refreshing study for you. I suspect some of you may still be a little confused about the book, like you can't quite get your hands around it. Others of you may be excited that we're finally talking about real issues, questions and things that you have wondered about. but that. Churchy type people don't usually talk about in church. Like, what is the meaning of life? And others of you may be tired of some of the repetitive themes that you're hearing again and again. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is an excellent book for you to jump into because you're going to find in this book that Christianity is not just this religious mumbo jumbo, it's not this pie in the sky, by and by sort of stuff. The Christian faith is an earthy faith. It can deal with the questions of life as we find it, as messy as that life is. And it has some important answers for us. Now, you sharp biblical thinkers may be wondering over these past few weeks about the relevance of this book to New Testament Christians. Because actually, there's nothing distinctively Christian in this entire book. Did you notice that? There's nothing about grace, mercy. There's nothing about atonement, forgiveness of sins. There's no mention of a Savior. In fact, just last week, somebody mentioned to me that when she first read this book, she wondered if it was some sort of a new Eastern religion, like Buddhism or Epicureanism, that thinks that all we're living for is this life. And that's kind of how the book feels. It's a great question. So I want to make two observations before we jump into chapter 8 this morning, in case you still are a little bit confused or have some angst about this book of Ecclesiastes. First, the purpose of Ecclesiastes. The author is called the preacher, probably Solomon, and he is simply in this book making observations about life under the sun. And by that he means our life from one horizon, our birth, to the other horizon, our death. He's talking about our physical, social, economic, political life under the sun in this earth as we experience it. And he looks at all that we do in the few years that we have on earth, and he says all of it never in the end really matters, because all of us end up dying, we can't take anything with us, and we're all going to end up six feet under. So he calls life 38 times in this book, the Hebrew word hevel, which is translated meaningless or vanity, or perhaps the best translation would be insignificant. Now, if Solomon knew what we know now of the universe, his question would have even more profound impact. I don't know if you saw this recent picture from the Hubble telescope. This is a picture of our universe, and it's a glimpse into it, as was Described in an article I read, if you were to take a grain of sand and hold it at arm's length and look at the universe through that tiny hole, this is what you would see. And they found 10,000 galaxies in that little pinprick of light. Which means for every grain of sand in your entire purview, there's 10,000 galaxies out there. This universe is unbelievably huge. Not only is it huge, it is powerful. Here's a picture of a black hole, where there is such dense matter that nothing can escape. Even light is sucked into this hole, and it devours stars and galaxies. My friends, this is the universe that we live in. This is the world that God created by his fingers, the psalmist says. He didn't even need to use his muscles. And then the psalmist asks, essentially what Solomon is asking, what is man that you are mindful? We're just living little pieces of dirt on a little piece of dust in the middle of this vast, powerful universe. What is the significance of it? And yet, we know deep in our hearts that there is another life. He's already told us in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity in their hearts. We know that there is something more. And hence the asterisk. Nothing matters... But what if it did? And it does, because there's another life after this one under the sun. The challenge is that we don't get much of the what if it did from the book of Ecclesiastes. We have to find that from the rest of the Bible, and particularly from the New Testament. The preacher knows that there's something after this life, and that is what gives him the hope that he expresses on rare occasions in the book. But he's not talking about that world in the book. He's talking about this world, the kingdom of the earth, the things that we can see and touch and taste. He's talking, if you will, about a small box of truth that is completely accurate, but it's encased in a much deeper, more significant, eternal box of truth that is the kingdom of God. So that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Second, the place of Ecclesiastes. Now, throughout history, God revealed himself to his people through the prophets. It says in Hebrews 1.1 that God revealed himself at many times and in many ways. God didn't reveal himself all at once, but he sprinkled it out over time. He gave Moses some revelation, David some, Solomon some here, some to the other prophets. But then Hebrews 1.2 goes on to say that in these last days, he has spoken by his Son. You see, the full revelation of God did not come until Jesus came, a thousand years after Solomon wrote this book. And it doesn't mean that what he wrote is wrong or that it's outdated. It just means that it's incomplete. And this is something that theologians call progressive revelation. God revealed more and more of himself throughout history until finally, 2,000 years ago, revealing himself fully in his Son, The law came through Moses, but when Jesus came, what do we find? Grace and truth. And that's why you've noticed that the preachers in this series always end up their sermons in the New Testament, and that's as it should be. But the links, the logical connections from this book to the gospel are sometimes hard to find, and yet that's the work that we need to do when we study the book. Derek Kidner said, this book pushes us towards a synthesis which lies mostly beyond its own pages. It's a very helpful sentence. Now, one last reminder before we jump into our passage. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's a kind of Middle Eastern poetry. The book is presented as a sermon, but it's not a sermon that you and I would understand very well because we're used to three- or four-point sermons, all logically put together. This is a circular book that keeps repeating the same messages, and today we're going to try to cover most of chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to lump the teaching there into four main categories because we're Westerners and not Middle Easterners. We're not going to get to every verse or answer every question you have, but we're going to give it a start. So chapter 8, verse 1, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? What he's saying is, does anybody have this life figured out? This life under the sun. While all of our earthly efforts will soon fade to black, Solomon wants us to understand that there is a better way, there is a preferred way to live this life under the sun, and that is the way of wisdom. This is how we live faithfully in a frustrating world, by living according to wisdom. Verse 1b, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. You see, a bright face is a sign of happiness or contentment. And because it gives understanding to some of the complexities and the conundrums of life, when we have wisdom, we can live life with a greater sense of ease and contentment. In chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see that wisdom adopts four perspectives on this life under the sun. And next week, from chapters 10 and 11, we're going to look at the four practices of wisdom. So this week, four perspectives that wisdom gives us about life under the sun. And for this, I'm going to need the help of our kids in the room. How many of you are going into first grade through sixth grade in the room? Yeah, I know you're a little nervous, but we're going to... Anybody remember Junior Church? Uh, I don't know if you grew up in churches where the kids all came forward... Well, I'm going to ask you kids going into first to sixth grade, if you wouldn't mind just coming forward, we need your help today a little bit because we're going to try to remember some key points and you're going to help us do that. So come on down, guys, and just have a seat right here. And if, if you're bigger than that and want to come down, you're welcome. If, if your, your parents want to come down with you, that's fine, but way to go, Marcus. Thanks for jumping out there and being a good example for folks. All right. Okay, you guys can stand right here and look at me. You don't have to look at all those scary people there, okay? So stand up here. And what we're going to do, um, hey, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah, just all fill in right here, guys, and, and look at me, because I'm going to be talking to you for a few minutes. Can you scoot up here? There we go. I, beautiful. Now, does anybody know what, the, what wisdom is? Can anybody define wisdom? Yeah, Rutledge. You had it, but then it slipped. Yeah, I know of that feeling. Yeah. Making wise choices. That's great. Jeremiah. Um, like um, being wise and giving other people good advice. All right. Giving other people good advice. That's fantastic. Now, here's another word. What does the word perspective mean? That's kind of a big word. Yeah. The way you view it. The way you view things. So we're going to learn four perspectives about life today. Now, if you see your parents back there, if you close one eye, you can't really tell how far away they are. Did you notice that? But if you, if you use two eyes, you, can, you have perspective. You can see what's going on back there, and you can see your parents. So we're going to try to get some perspective on this idea of wisdom. Yeah, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. It's great. <laughs> All right, now here's what we're going to do. I've, I've got four motions because we have four points, and I'm going to teach you these, and you're going to teach all these big people here these things too, okay? So here's the sermon for today. For perspective, we're going to do this. Two fingers, in or twice. Can you do that? So wisdom gives us perspective about four things. The first thing is perspective about respecting our leaders. So our first point is wisdom gives us perspective about respecting our leaders. Okay, now I need everybody to do that. Some of you aren't paying attention, so hang in there. (laughs) Wisdom gives us perspective about obeying our leaders. Fantastic. Number two, wisdom gives us perspective about how small we are. That's good. Nice. Wisdom gives us perspective about how small we are, almost as small as you. Fantastic. So first, wisdom gives us perspective on respecting our leaders Wisdom gives us perspective on how small we are. Number three, wisdom gives us perspective that it will all be right in the end. Now, what you need to do is do this, and then you need to do that, because there's going to be an end to all of this, and everything is going to be right in the end. So wisdom gives us perspective that it will all be right in the end. Number four, this is the funnest one of all. Can you do this, Marcus? Marcus. Wisdom gives us perspective to enjoy life. I need to make those noises, too. Wisdom gives us perspective to enjoy life. Wow. All right. One last time, because they're a little bit slower out there. They're older. They're having a harder time following this. So we need all of you to give us these four points together. Ready to do them? We're not going to say anything. We're just going to do the motions, okay? Wisdom gives us wisdom gives us all right very well done thank you guys thank you fantastic you can head back now to your parents and if any of you get lost I'm sure a family would be happy to take you home after after (laughs) church so that was really good kids thank you for helping us out and really we could kinda do the benediction right now I mean that that was the sermon so but I know you wanna get your money's worth so here we go first perspective is that wisdom respects its leaders verse 2 I say Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. You see, even though in one sense it doesn't ultimately matter what we do on this earth, the fact of the matter is that we have a few years to live here on this earth. And life is going to be better for us if we're going to live together in peace, if we have some kind of organized structure, some kind of agreed-upon society and rules. Now, 3,000 years ago, when this book was written, the system was a monarchy. There was a king who had absolute authority. He was to be obeyed, verse 2. He was to be respected, verse 3. He had great authority, verse 4. And there is a time and a way for everything, including obeying those in authority over us. And the New Testament agrees with this. In fact, Paul adds to this in Romans 13, that there is no authority on earth except that which God has put in place. And don't forget, he was speaking during the era of Nero. So don't complain about your leaders. Respect your leaders, whether they were elected in 2016 or 2020. They are the leaders that God has chosen for us, and we need to live life respectfully under their leadership. The text speaks about political leaders, but the same wisdom can be applied in all of our relationships in life. Leaders in our families, in our workplaces, in our church. We are to live within the system of leadership that God has put in place. The first, perspective of wisdom. The second is that wisdom accepts its limitations. And there are four of these scattered throughout these two chapters. Wisdom, we told the kids, remembers how small it is. And this is a hard one for us because once we become big, we don't like to think that we're small anymore. But wisdom does accept its limitations. The first is that we can't know the future. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? And then chapter 9, verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Imagine if we could just peer a little bit into the future. I shouldn't maybe tell you this, but I've often thought about that on Super Bowl night. If I could just peer about four hours into the future, I could become a fabulously wealthy person. But think of all the tragedies we could avoid if we could just peer into the future. If, if you knew that you were going to have an accident on 465 on your way home today, you'd just take 31 home. Problem solved. If you knew that this job was going to not work out for you, you would, you would not take it. Or this relationship was going to sour, you just wouldn't enter it. Or this investment was going to go south on it on you, you would not put money there. If you could see the future, you would make changes. See, the reason that fish get trapped in nets is because they don't know what's going to happen. And the bird doesn't see the snare, but there it's captured. And and that's just like life is for us. There are things around the corner that we simply cannot see because we are humans. We have to take life as it comes. And the New Testament agrees. James 4.4, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. (laughs) Very simple. And then he must have been reading Ecclesiastes because James goes on to say, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says essentially the same thing. Life in one sense is meaningless because we're just here for a little bit and then it's gone. That is our first limitation. The second is that we can't control death. Look at verse 8 of chapter 8. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. When the Spanish conquistadors came to the New World in the early 16th century, it was rumored that the Taino Indians had discovered a magic fountain, a river of life somewhere north of Cuba. And the explorer Ponce de Leon has become associated with this fountain of youth. And today you can still go to St. Augustine, Florida, and you can drink of that sulfur-smelling and tasting water from the Fountain of Youth and see if it will take years off your life, along with tens of thousands of other people that are trying to do the same thing. But what is it, what's it going to do for you? Probably just make you sick. Yeah. You see, there, there is no escaping this. There is, just like a soldier doesn't get discharged while there's a war on, You do not get discharged from life until God decides that he's going to discharge you. We have no control over the day of our death. The reality remains, as it says in Psalm 139, that every day ordained for us is written in the book before one of them came to be, and only God has that book. So our life under the sun is limited. It will come to an end, and then what will happen? Who will remember us? Jesus agrees. He says in Matthew 6, 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? It it doesn't help to worry about your death. It really doesn't. It's ordained. You have no control over it. Now, death does help concentrate our thinking, and we should think about how we're going to use our few days on this earth but that's not Solomon's point right here in fact he doesn't get to that point till the very end of the book so we're gonna to have to wait a couple of weeks to find that out his point here is simply this that wisdom accepts this limitation that we can do nothing about the day of our death number three our third limitation is that we can't ensure fairness and there are several verses we'll look at quickly we have a built-in human mechanism don't we that screams for fairness. And if you're a parent here, I can almost guarantee that you have spoken these words on more than one occasion to your children. Life is not fair. In Pakistan, when we were raising our children, we didn't have ready access to American candy. So once in a while, we'd run across a Snickers bar. And you know what we would do? We'd divide it three ways among our three kids. And guess what they did? They they would get a ruler out. Because, you know, you don't want 1 32nd inch less than what your brother or sister is going to get. This is just built inside of us. We want life to be fair. But, but life is not fair. We don't each get 1.89 inches of a Snickers bar. How do we know that? Well, the wicked are not always punished. Chapter 8, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. And because of this, wickedness increases. We see evil in the world that's not accounted for, and we say, God, why is that happening? And it just increases the wickedness. Chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. We see this in our society today, don't we? The madness, the evil that is in the human heart. The meth epidemic, the mass shootings. We've seen this in our history, the history of the world and the history of our country with slavery, for instance, or Hitler or Pol Pot, or in our century now, what's happening in Ukraine. This is evil. This is madness. And the wicked are not brought to account. And there's nothing we can do about it, is what Solomon says, because life is not fair. The righteous are not always rewarded, chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So you begin to wonder, why should I care about how I live if I live a righteous life? There's no difference between me and the the sinner. Life is not fair. And then finally, the deserving do not always receive what they deserve, chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, while it's true that the race usually is to the swift and the battle usually is to the strong, it's not always true. Have you ever seen a baton drop in a relay race and the fastest team doesn't even get a medal? Time and chance happen to us all. An athlete goes up for a shot, lands on someone else's ankle, his ACL tears and he's out for a whole year. Two inches is all the difference that it took. There was a guy in 2008 who for every, every day had bought a lottery ticket. And he finally, one of his tickets landed and he won a million dollars. And that night he had a heart attack and died. That's a true story. Why? Because time and chance happen to us all. What is it in your world? From the frustrating, like you finally find the shortest line at Kroger to check out and the guy in front of you pulls out 35 coupons. (laughs) (laughs) To the maddening, why did that person get advanced and promoted over me when I was better qualified and was a better worker? To the potentially embittering, Why was my child born with this condition? Or why did I come down with this disease? And Solomon's answer is, hey, time and chance happen to us all. Life is not fair. So have a great day. (laughs) You see, he's raising issues that are hard. He's not giving us easy answers because there aren't. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. In this imperfect world, what would be your fair share of suffering? I mean, you've contributed to the problem, have you not? So there's probably a fair share for all of us, and what, what is that? Well, we can't really define that. And if you feel that you've gotten more than your fair share, Solomon's answer is simply, there's chance that happens in this fallen world. That was your bad luck. And we tend to think that if bad stuff happens to us, God hates us. And if good stuff happens to us, he loves us. But the verse we just read negates that. It says, you can't tell love or hate based on what happens to you. Because this is the result of living in a random, fallen world. We see this unfairness, and our hearts cry out, God, if you are in charge, why does this happen? Would you please fix it? But that is not the preacher's point. He's not dealing with the whys of life under the sun, simply the what's. That's our third limitation. Our fourth is that we can't fully understand God. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. Now the preacher gives us a glimpse behind the curtain of life under the sun. And he realizes that it is not simply a world of chance. He said in verse 17, the work of God. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, the hand of God. He knows there's a God behind all of this somehow, but he he doesn't quite understand or at least explain to us the connection between that God and what we are experiencing in this life under the sun. In fact, he says, you can't figure it out. No matter how hard we work, verse 16, no matter how late you stay up, no matter how smart you are, three times in verse 17, he says he cannot, he will not, he cannot find it out. God, as we read this morning from Romans chapter 11, is inscrutable. That means he cannot be understood. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable, Psalm 145. Job cried out this, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? It is deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And the preacher's point is simply this, we're not human, we're not God, and we cannot understand God. Just like you will never be able to explain to your dog why you have to take him to the vet who pokes him with sharp needles. Uh, Now, that's not because you hate him. It's because you're trying to do something good. But the dog will never understand that. It's just beyond what's in here in a dog's brain. Now, humans can understand that much. But the point is that God is doing things bigger and higher and greater, as Mark read at the very beginning, because his thoughts are that much higher than ours. And we will never, in this life under the sun, be able to understand it. And that's how we live faithfully in a frustrating world, understanding that we will not ever know everything there is to know about God. But here's the beauty from the New Testament. The the preacher asks us this question, are you wise enough to know that you are not wise enough to know? And that only one does, and his name is God. But God gives us comfort from the New Testament. Even though his ways are unsearchable, we do know this about him, that God takes everything in our lives and he works them together for what? For good. This God who we can't fully understand is working things together for our good. And the beauty is that the greatest mystery about God has already been revealed by his Son in these last days. And when God revealed himself through his son, what did he reveal? He revealed grace and truth. Grace upon grace, John 1 says. He revealed that I love you enough to send my son to die in your place on the, on the cross, to bear your sins so that your sins might be purified and you can have a right relationship with me. That is the heart of God. Yeah. And if we know that about God, we know everything that's of significance that we need to know here on this earth. Yeah. Now, for some of you, This is not just a theoretical issue. Because you've got this set of questions over here. God, I don't understand this. I want answers to these things before I'm going to believe in you. And God's answer isn't to go through and answer all your questions. He's not your lackey. What God's answer is this. He says, I have done all of this for you in Jesus Christ. And if you will embrace what I have done for you in Christ, all of those other issues will pale in significance they don't disappear but they become less important and when you embrace God and he embraces you you embrace that unknown and you become content to wait until the end when everything will be made right Amen. and it will be clear one day praise God <clears throat> if you're determined to come to conclusions about life that makes sense to you in this world you will stay frustrated and you will stay far from God but if you will embrace What he has revealed, the rest will become clear. I had lunch a couple of weeks ago with a man who's probably the wisest man I know. He's in his mid-80s, and he said, "'The older I get, the more mystery I see in the world.'" And then he added this, "'And the more content I am with mystery.'" Friends, this is our limitation under the sun. If we will embrace it, we'll have an easier life. the third one, The third perspective is that wisdom trusts the end results. You remember that one? Wisdom trusts, as curly as the road is, the end results. And it's in verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. He didn't understand everything about the judgment That one day books will be opened and everybody will be judged according to their deeds. But that will happen. It will be made right. And that there's another book on that day, the book of life. And if your name is written in that book of life because you've embraced what God has revealed in his son, your record will be clear and you will enter eternal life. And you're saying there's another point here. And there is. And we are almost out of time. So I happen to know the guy that's going to preach next Sunday. So... What we're going to do, because our fourth point, that wisdom gives us the perspective to appreciate life's gifts, that's also in chapters 10 and 11, so we're going to push that point off for the preacher next week and develop that then. But today, three things that wisdom gives us perspective on, that we should respect our leaders, that we should accept our limitations, and finally, that we should trust the end results. Now, he ends in the end of chapter 9 with a little interesting story of a wise man who saved a city by his wisdom and then was forgotten. You should read that story later. In fact, here's a, a quick assignment for you. Uh, it, it says, one of the verses we read, chapter 9, verse 7, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved of what you do. What I'd like you to do if you're a family or single in your Bible study Kids, I want you to think about this question as we get ready for next week, and then we'll wrap up for today. Solomon said, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus said, the fool said, eat, drink, and be merry. So I want you to think about who was right, Jesus or Solomon, and we're going to come back, and whoever's preaching next Sunday is going to have to deal with that issue. But to wrap up for today, Solomon wrote this book to demolish our pretense and to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. And for some of us, that takes a lot of work. But that's what he's trying to accomplish. The apparent meaninglessness of life under the sun should drive us to find an eternal meaning meaning in life. Because what will it profit us if we gain the whole world and yet lose our soul? There is that big box around the small box that he was talking about. We need to sell all that we have to gain that pearl of great price. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's why everything does matter. Because that next life hinges on what you do in this life. And I would just encourage you today to bow before God and to recognize what he's revealed in his son. And to embrace that and to love him and to accept your limitations that these things you will not understand until we get into glory and to live life in the fullness of the joy of what God has revealed to us because in our smallness we see the greatness of God in our limitations we see the sufficiency of God and in the cross we see the grace of God we can't know the future he has secured it we fear death he has conquered it we hate unfairness he will correct it We don't understand. He will make it clear. And so we can live with the things that we don't know because of the glory of the things that we do. And this is how we live faithfully in a frustrating world. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we want more light, but we confess that we don't actually live up to the light that we've already been given. And so today I pray that you would help us to understand again how small and limited we are and yet how treasured we are, how much you love us. Father, for those who are struggling with these questions of life, would you let them be resolved in the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated while we were yet sinners on the cross. For those who have not yet put their trust in him, God, would you work in their hearts to realize that you've given us the greatest gift of all, And would each of us leave today full of joy and worship that you make up far beyond all of our limitations. In fact, you cause us to worship you because you are so much greater than we are. We give you our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.